I love the I, I love I love the whole thing. All right, so let's have some fun today, gentlemen. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the HR Revolution or Evolution. No matter what way you look at it, we're under new times in this world of work. Uh, so we talk about the revolution of HR for the evolution of business today. And we do that through conversations with experts and industry professionals like today, Dr. Nick, um, who we could not be more excited to, uh, to have on the show today because Nick focuses on performance. So we love to have conversations. We love to pull out the, that intellectual and social capital from our guests so our listeners can learn and start applying this to their day jobs and make them better leaders or make them that fractionally better within their day is really our why we do this and why this is a passion project for my friend Chris and I, as well as Bobby and Jonna. So Chris is with me today as the co-host. Thank you, Kevin. And it's great to be back for another episode. Uh, really excited, as Kevin said, you know, our, our mission here is to make sure that we getting, you know, information, data, details that are going to help all of us perform better in our roles and can't be more excited for our guest, Dr. Nick Molinaro uh, today with us. Dr. Nick is the CEO and founder of Performance in Mind. He is a licensed psychologist with specialties in counseling and performance and sports psychology. In the corporate world, Dr. Nick helps organizations with assessments, coaching, succession planning, and talent acquisition. His vast array of clients, again, this is not all the entire list, but some of them uh, include BlackRock, BMS, Comfort Systems USA, and many others. Uh, you may have heard him on the airways as well if you listen to PGA Tour Radio, NBA Radio, CBS Sports Talk Radio, and ESPN Radio. On behalf of Kevin and myself, we wanna thank you, Dr. Nick, for joining us today and welcome you to the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Uh, I appreciate this very much and looking forward to our conversation and having some fun with you boys. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Well, the weather's starting to change. So I know you probably have already been on the course a couple of times. Nick, yes. what's uh, I got to ask, what driver are you hitting these days? Tailor made. Tailor made? Yep. Is it yep. what, what year? This year? Is it the latest? Is this model even no, hitting the no, I'm working on my swing. So before I invest in, uh, you know, getting refitted, uh, you know, that now I'm a little bit up in age. Uh, so uh, I'm waiting until I get my swing better before I get some new equipment. Hey, that's all right. It sounds like the TaylorMade's probably still straight, straight, uh, right down the gut of the... Right, the, right the down the middle. Yeah. Yep. That's right awesome. Middle. That's great. What's your handicap these days, Dr. Nick? <laughs> uh, it's an 18. Uh you know, years ago when I was playing a lot of golf, I was at an 11. Uh, I've been as low as 14. Uh, this year, I made a concerted effort. Uh, I'll be back by a 14 in the next two months, there's no doubt. That's awesome. How about that performance? You know the, you know those small <laughs> things, right? Uh, we talk yep. about breaking these big goals down. You know, four yep. strokes doesn't sound like much, but it is a lot, right? How do we get, uh, how do we boil these big goals down to little goals is kind of, well, Chris and I are really trying to help businesses and organizations and leaders try to understand that goal setting is no longer really enough. And, and I know you want being on the performance side, Nick, yeah. you've, you've seen a lot of that and you've probably seen how leadership has changed and, and nothing better oh, yeah. to compare a, a professional athlete with a CEO. What are some of the things that you're starting to see today from your research and, and the work that you're doing? And, and, and is leadership starting to change? Is performance and leadership starting to change? From your estimation, what what is, what is happening in leadership today? I think there's a resurgence, um, particularly I find this with the, the top performers. You know, at, um, large organizations with leadership 
that's committed to the way they're living their life. So, you know, we can go in and just like you can fix uh, anybody's swing with golf, but you better fix their mindset too uh, in order to be able to perform at the highest level. I, I, so I've been uh, blessed with the opportunities to work with some very high performing uh, corporations and leaders. And uh, it's exciting to see that they're doing this within their entire life. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's not happening in other areas, um, but I would say that that's probably going to be the wave of the future is where people are recognizing that this is not just about work. This is about living your life. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, stuff you've read about growth mindset, you know, Carolyn Dweck stuff and grit, you know, uh, so we can look over a lot of that kind of research, but what I'm finding in amazing proportions that the highest performers are looking at how to enrich themselves in their lives, not just their leadership at work. Yeah, mm. I think that you bring up a great point. What, I, what I'd love to know, Dr. Nick, is you know, working in two different areas of focus, the, the sports world, sports psychology, and the corporate world, what do you see as the biggest similarities between those two? And maybe what are the biggest differences between you know, those two distinct, distinct areas of focus? Great question, Chris, thanks. Uh, um, you know, most, uh, most of the time when I'm brought in to consult and they're looking over someone who's gonna be in a position of leadership and they wanna know about my sports background and why is it used, you know, in the work that I'm doing. And what I always go back to is executive functioning. It's sort of like, I'm an executive, you're measuring my functioning. I said, well, we're looking at your cognitive function. We're looking at your cognitive executive functioning. So, um, Kind of a long story, but I think you'll see the benefit of listening to this. So when I wrote my book on youth sports, what I was really interested in was never winning. It was about how youth can learn how to make more effective decisions in the moment and then being able to train them as they're growing, how to do that in business settings, as an example, or in any aspect of their life. So the biggest thing that I find in high performers you know, either performers in business that have athletic backgrounds uh, and they're asking me, well, is it all about teamwork? And I said, well, you know, maybe, you know, yeah. is it all about the competition? Said, no, is it all about winning? And when I bring this up, I'm saying, how do you make decisions? And once I ask that question, they're saying, well, you know, I'm not really sure. You can't think of every word you're gonna say before you say it, right? And that's because your subconscious mind is doing this. So in leadership, those who are performing at their highest level, they're using a global process of their being that kind of person. So we're not just saying, well, how do you become a CEO or a CFO in C-suite? We're looking at the way in which they're looking at themselves and the world. So that's what the correlation is. So when you see the highest performers that I work with, that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, how are they different? Well, Certainly, I would never say every athlete would make a great CEO, uh, just like every military individual would not make a leader. Mm -hmm. So people think that this is all because of their competition and teamwork. This really goes to this whole process of decision-making. That's not even being analyzed. You know how you make your decisions. So that's what I would see is the major difference. I spend time on metacognition, teaching people how to think about their thinking, and, uh, you know, it's highly interactive kind of work that we do. Hopefully that answers your question, Chris. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Love that. 
And, and I think it is about decision making and, and, and kind of Dr. Nick, we're seeing we're living in this world that's just just changing so fast, right? And something that we thought was truth um, two weeks ago is now not, right? And something, right. something entirely different. And what I'm starting to see is that uh, more leaders, right? Change before was slow, right? Maybe you would only have a couple changes within the year. It wasn't that disruptive and you could get through it. Now we're seeing constant disruption, from a performance and decision-making standpoint, when we're under constant states of stress, what do you do and how do you help leaders kind of quiet the noise, let's say, so they can make the right decision and maybe a more informed decision rather than a gut knee-jerk instinct decision? Yeah, great question, Kevin. You know, the, the whole thing around this stress, uh, stress is cumulative and progressive. So one and one doesn't equal two. And so when you look at, that's part of what happens with stress. You know, the definition of stress is kind of anything that moves you away from equilibrium. So even on vacation, you have to try to have fun. You have to try to get there. I mean, with all of what's been going on with COVID. And so it's stressful. So people look at stress in a pejorative way, in a negative way, but things that you enjoy doing can be stressful for some of those reasons. So the first thing that we're doing in our fireside chats is to make sure that we identify what stress is. And then we're trying to take, you know, kind of a, a survey on um, what, the stress, what the stressors are, external, internal. And then I always ask the questions uh, in these three areas, relief, relaxation, and pleasure. How do you get relief? How do you relax deeper? And, and how do you actually have enjoyment and pleasure? And interesting, when I get to the last one, People say, yeah, I'm not even sure I know what it is. Yeah. And then when they figure it out, they say, when's the last time you did that? And it's sort of like, I have to go back into the archives to try to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> to this uh, stress management piece is that we want to move the individual, the individual away from the impact of this so we get relief. You bang your head against the wall for 10 hours, stop banging, it feels good not pleasurable and it only feels good because uh you have there's an absence of pain yeah each relaxation we we use mindfulness and you know i actually do a fair degree of hypnosis uh with all leaders and uh, business uh, and and athletes as well and then getting the quality of what produces pleasure the last piece i'll say about this for now is that um almost every one of the high performers i'm working with are doing some form of art Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. even know how creative they are and um, I can help them understand there's more creativity and you're not even using part of your brain you probably can use. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that kind of goes back to this, the metacognition and, and more awareness as to how you're making decisions. I think like right. you said, is like just even walking through, it's almost like those baby steps that now yeah. it, it's so, it happens so quickly that we don't even realize how we're making decisions until we say, wait a second, let's, let's pause. Let me, let right. me have kind of this great reflection, right? This, this time out, if you will, um, to right. really determine how my brain is making those decisions. And, that, and something that you told me a long time ago is that your intention drives your attention. And, and I want to yeah. get into that. But one sure. of the things I wanted before I before I go there, I wanted to ask you a question on the stress, because, yeah. yes, you deal with executives and you deal with uh, the, the professional athletes. But let's talk about from top to bottom within these organizations, how much stress all of their employees are handling. If employers were smart 
or wanted to maximize the performance of their overall workforce, yeah. would I be wrong in saying that they should try to limit the amount of stressors that their employees are focusing or harnessing every day? Well, there's no doubt. Uh, you know, first of all, you have to really have a, an affinity for picking that up, right? So that's when we look at empathy. And I spend much more time on cognitive empathy than the emotional empathy part. And then when we look at, you know, being able to get your some relief, but then, you know, kind of encouraging their experiences with pleasure, you know, instead of saying, we can't have an extra day off this week, you know, because of, and obviously you have to do this, you know, in a prudent fashion, mm -hmm. but there's no question that they need to look that over. Um, do uh, the leaders understand what is stressful? Are there stress questionnaires? Mm -hmm. So when, you know, when we go into a corp and we're, we're getting norms for that corp, you know, so we'll, you know, as, as, as you know, Kevin, I, we develop our own 360 questions because we're looking for something specific, which that stuff doesn't come off the shelf stuff. And we need to know exactly what's going on uh, within that corp and within that team. So. I love that. I love yeah, that. that's interesting. Um, and I think that we're seeing a lot of organizations, Dr. Nick, try to um, switch into that area. Of we need to listen more to our people. There's a lot of surveying going on, a lot of listening sessions going on, you know, more uh, what I'll call engagement activities going on just to kind of understand and empathize really where each of the, the employees are and their, and their kind of levels of stress that they're taking on, which is interesting. Right. Um, well, this becomes a philosophy, right? Yeah. So, you know, certainly we, we hear wellness all the time. And yeah. I, I don't like mental wellness because when you think in opposites like I do, um, it, that something else comes up when you hear that term mental. So, you know, our programs are more focused on well-being and, you know, it's kind of global, but it's really around the philosophy of who you are and who you can become. Um, and, you know, we do some mindfulness stuff, but, you know, because of some of the crazy training that I took in uh, existential psychology and phenomenology, it's to help people understand that their experience of the world is different than others. Right. That's a simple thing to say, but do you really even know what that means what it is for anybody else. So when we get to this whole stress thing, Chris, that's a really critical factor. Um, you know, when you when you think of um, you think of 9-11-9-1-1, same numbers produce different pictures in your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, are leaders aware that the way in which they're communicating or what their goals are might be triggering some other stress responses. We can't get all of that, but it's an appreciation of understanding all communications and, and, you know, we can jump into the intense stuff, uh, Kevin, when you want to. All communications have a purpose. Otherwise, why would you do it? Correct. And then maybe right there is a perfect segue because I lead with this. Uh, this was one of those those the decision-making tools that, that I got from you is, is that simplicity. And I love what you said that everybody's experience is, is, is different, right? And right. I think that that is kind of tapping into some of the things that people ask me like now is like, why do you share that stuff on LinkedIn? Or why do you share your views? And I tell them the same thing is I never thought people wanted to hear it, right? I never thought right. that people enjoyed reading. Right. It. And then when people start asking you, it's like, oh, okay. Right. And so that that really hit home for me. But that yeah. going to the intention drives attention is really what are we right. behind everything, how we start our day, how we go into right. a meeting, how... Can you talk about the power of that and what that sure. just connection of the dot really does, I, I think, for myself and probably for a lot of, uh, of your other uh, people that sure. you work with? 
Sure. So in the model I've been working on, uh, intention drives attention, as Kevin was explaining. Intention drives attention. Attention drives uh, decision-making. Decision-making drives behavior. Behavior drives performance. So just from that basic framework. The average human has 80,000 thoughts a day. That's a lot of thinking going on. What do you think about? And by the end of the day, you don't remember hardly any of those, but 80,000 thoughts a day. And we make 35,000 decisions a day. And we're not even aware because some of those are subconscious. And so then we look at what's called subconscious intention. I won't go too far down the field there. But so everything you do has a purpose. And we think we understand what the purpose is, and sometimes we don't. You can't think of every word you're going to say before you say it. Subconscious mind is doing that. So your decisions are around that. So I've given the example uh, with you, Kevin, that I'm sure you've read a paragraph, and after you've read it, you don't remember a bloody thing. Yes. Yeah. So new paragraph, Kevin. New paragraph. I want you to find the two most important points in this paragraph. Would you read it differently? And the answer is you would. Just because you shifted your intention. So in my optimal functioning model, I take into consideration factors that influence intention, which are values and personality. Mm. And they kind of converge into what drives your intention. And now your attention is affected. So, um, you know, for those of you who are viewing, this will do a very quick exercise. So just kind of stare at the screen. And without moving your eyes, I want you to become aware of something to the right of the screen. And don't move your eyes and just identify what that is. And without moving your eyes, shift your attention to the left of the screen. And so you're laughing, Chris, pick something up there, huh? Uh, And something to the uh, left of the screen. And now it's actually possible to be paying attention to both of those things while your focus is on the screen, right? Yeah. All you did was shift your attention. So think of the power of your mind of making sure that your attention is where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And in performance, uh, you know, outside of the, you know, the decision-making cognitive processes, it's always external. So if you're uh, interacting with someone else, your attention should be on, you know, picking up the cues, uh, listening to the content. You know, the whole thing about, uh, you know, cognitive empathy is, you know, I said, you know what that person's thinking about? I said, I don't know how they arrived at that decision. That's why I can't understand them. I said, if you try to understand how they're thinking, uh, I could have had a V8, you know, so they asked themselves the question, what were you thinking? But not in a pejorative way, like, what were you thinking? Uh, so you ask them what questions and how questions is a really great strategy. Never ask why. Why assesses motivation. And most times people don't know why. And if you answer why, you're going to ask the question, well, why that, why that? Yeah. How and what ask process questions. So, so the point I'm making here is that managing stress, using your intentions, generally speaking, if that was what your intention was on a daily basis as a leader, I'm intending on being aware of what stress is being produced in my staff, my team. What can I do today to help them? That'd be a really great way to start the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love what you said too about the, sorry, the values and the, the personality yeah. coming together. That was, yeah. yeah. I think that says a lot. I, the cognitive empathy versus emotional empathy and asking the questions to understand 
you know, we talk a lot about, you know, facts and feelings going on in the individual. Are you asking the right questions? Understand, you know, the facts driving, you know, the feelings that they're, that they're demonstrating right there. So that's fantastic. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about performance. And I want to bubble it up to a process level. So you, you kind of mentioned on the individual level, how do we, you know, really work towards enhancing our own performance? How do you look at it when it comes to teams? And even organizations, I know I'm going to bring up the old performance management process, goal setting, you know, checking in, year end reviews. What's your stance on all of that? And what have you seen in your work, Dr. Nick, with organizations that are trying to, you know, find the right the right process that works for that organization? Uh, the key here is it's going to sound relatively simple. Is to work on understanding. Now, okay. that sounds very simple. How do you know someone actually understands you? So, you know, and I can tell you how you can do that uh, because I'll I'll certainly give you the answers today. Um, (laughs) But, you know, a lot of times understanding is, oh, I understand, but you don't really know that a person understands because that's the case. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why this is critical uh, and we see it from the top down and it's integrated in what then, then would become a valuing system. And we'll talk about valuing versus evaluation. You know, when it's part of your valuing system, you can see it start to permeate through the team. So we work with a very high level, uh, you know, finance corp. And we were working with, uh, you know, managing directors. And it was amazing to see, you know, after the analysis of each of them, um, that there were so many different um, styles uh, of leading and who was risk oriented and who wasn't risk oriented and who used, um, you know, kind of heuristic process, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, that kind of thing, you know, versus someone who is very analytic. But what was characteristic of that entire team was that there was a valuing that was, that was there for the team and for each other. Now, I observed them over two days at a retreat and saw that this was the truth. I saw where there were disagreements but the valuation versus evaluation makes a huge difference. There's nothing wrong with evaluating. However, valuing is to be part of the culture. So the example is, I'm sure you guys have seen sunsets. There's probably some sunsets, sunsets up there in, the, in New York, right? Maybe uh, to the west there and look over the mountains. Um, and if you saw a sunset, you wouldn't say, yeah, not so hot. Last night's was much better. I would like that sunset if it was a little bit more like this or that. You just value what that is. Mm-hmm. Now imagine if that's the way you treated other people. Imagine if that was from the top down that the valuation process, now of course there's to be evaluations, you know, we don't want to get ourselves into trouble, but we have to separate those things out. So what I'm seeing to kind of wrap together some of the things we've talked about is what I'm seeing that organizations that are really focused on valuation and doing appropriately the evaluation in a constructive way, servant leadership, whatever the model is. Um, That's what I see makes the biggest difference. Uh, And so uh, my dissertation was based on understanding. I, the evaluation, how, how that's that's the most challenging part, I think though, is is for businesses, right? Is that internal look, but they can't, it can't possibly be them, right? Or it can't possibly be, the culture that they've created around themselves or who they've de- right. decided, how do you get them comfortable to take that hard internal look instead of always that the, our natural tendency, which I think is to point the finger? Well, I mean, if, if the corporation is asking for input, if they're looking for highest level functioning, 
um, the, the thrust of our work would be understanding, first of all, humans don't do well if they're not in groups, right? We don't do well. Understanding is the only way to bond relationships between individuals and between a group and a corporation. So understanding, now the interesting thing about understanding is requires no proof. What? Mm -hmm. uh, so my dissertation had no hypothesis hmm. and I got through because <laughs> I, used a, I used a very specific process. But the point I'm making is, how do you know someone understands you? And you know, I can go through, it take a little time, maybe not this time, but so I would say that's a key factor in, uh, in getting the team to work uh, in a unified fashion. If you don't have a sense of belonging, yeah. it won't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that that's become even more challenging, Dr. Nick, in this hybrid world, this remote world, where you had typically leaders traditionally I hate to say command and control because I can see you and you're in front of me, but now we're all, you know, we're all disparate. We're all separated. And it's hard to maintain that group or that sense of belonging when everybody's working out of their, you know, home offices in front of their computers. So what can leaders do? What can organizations do to help their, their managers and leaders kind of keep that sense of belonging, that sense of understanding intact? You know, I don't, I don't think it's a percept at this point. Uh, you know, that unless, I mean, so we, we're talking a little bit, uh, Kevin's talking a little bit about kind of self-awareness. Uh, you know, awareness is the, you know, it has the highest correlation of effective leadership. It's number one thing. If you can't become aware, how can you make any changes? Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's where we have to begin is to educate what awareness means. And the work that I do is called performance coaching. I have executive coaches that work with me. I know nothing about business. I know a lot about how people make decisions. Uh, so, so the point I'm making is even the concept of understanding. I mean, is that out there? Are people talking about how do I know that you know the person I'm speaking to understands because they say yes, um, because they say I don't understand, and how do you know that? And that it's a little complicated, but that's where it has to begin. If it doesn't happen, belonging won't take place. Mm -hmm. And you're going to start to add more stress to the court. Yeah. So that's where it has to begin. And I and, and I love your build building understanding. And and, and right, I, I think to your point earlier that we're making all these decisions within this day, and we're what we're, we're doing is is conserving energy, right? Our brain is conserving energy that we don't have to put that much thought into every single decision because if we had to do that for the thirty five thousand, we would be exhausted at the end of the day. Correct. Okay. So one of the things that when we're building understanding, um, I feel like in the, the world, as stress levels increase, that the levels of assumptions also increase because we don't have the time and energy to ask the questions to build awareness and understanding. I've seen more people trigger to that quick thought process with trying to assume what that person's thinking, what their motivation is behind the question without ever asking a question themselves. And I've right. just seen that really pick up more throughout the pandemic. And I don't know if it's the remote and hybrid and I can't see you, um, but I wanted to see what you thought about that. And if, if, if there's any correlations there or anything that you've seen or uncovered during your career as well. Uh, another great point. I mean, so uh, you've seen this model, uh, Kevin, you can know something, understand it, know something and not understand it. <laughs> you can understand something and not believe you can understand something and believe it. You can believe things that are not true. You can believe things that are true. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. You can either value or not value whether it's the truth or not truth. And then you have to apply this. So when you look at the application, so we always make the inferences. We want to know what a person believes, watch what they're doing over time, because mm. it's going to subsume all of those things about valuation. I mean, even if you're in coercion, you're respectful of the, the coercion in order to get things done. So um, I think that's a critical piece of the whole process of being able to do that. Now, how do we get people to do that when they're working from home? Mm -hmm. A lot, so I work with a variety of people, it's not just the leaders. And so when we get down into the trenches, the belief system that they have is that they're being watched 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And if they're not on the computer, so let's just take that premise. And what if that's wrong? But what if it's right? How do we know? You open up an arc of two degrees and travel out 20 miles, that arc is huge. Yeah. So what I think is going on is that there are a new set of premises that are taking place from people in their homes versus what was going on, because you could see those things and it kind of added to the truth of what it is that you were believing. Well, so-and-so is at the water cooler um, two or three times a day when so-and-so is also there. And I think something is going on. Yeah. So you can make inferences from things that you're seeing. Now we're making inferences from things that we're not seeing. And that's very dangerous stuff. And so whether it's leadership or whether it's, uh, you know, the uh, in the trenches individuals, that is taking place. I don't think that that's well understood at all. I don't think surveys are going to give you a great explanation of that. I really think that it would take what I'm talking about is gathering that data and having someone in the firm speaking to someone, showing them that they care, that there's understanding that's going on, because that's not going to be something that comes up just from writing you know, a checklist. So that's what I would say from the major factors that's causing so much disruption and stress at home. I, and one thing I want to kind of carry, keep carrying on with that is because I think it, it has something to do with this as well, is that uh, organizations, leadership, um, especially top down, they, they're really good at goal setting, right? And they're the, the desired outputs of what they want. They're very, there is no intention, I believe, right, to really understand performance at a greater level within the organization because they're not aware of what inputs drive those desired outputs and that cause and effect. And, and when you say get down in the trenches and they're watched 24 seven, that perception is that they don't, there's a lack of trust almost within leadership. Are you starting to see trust kind of bear its ugly head in this very emotional state that we are? And is that why PricewaterhouseCoopers and Ernst & Young are changing their whole business model to trust is because trust builds resilience? Well, I'd like to believe that that's the case. I don't know very much about them, but uh, <laughs> so yeah, so when you look at trust, I mean, trust is an interesting system, right? So, uh, and again, Kevin, you've had the experience of looking at the difference between trust and faith. And trust is based upon proof and it's based upon the past. So um, if you have not had the experience, then how can you trust it? Now we're in an environment where all this stuff is new. Well, it's not so new now that it's two or so years old, yeah. but you know, we're still learning about this. We still don't know. I mean, so sometimes I'm asked to do these kind of fireside chats and um, we've had some great uh, you know, interactions with people uh, that are willing to talk a little bit more about what their experiences are. I think trust is a, we can use any word that we want to, and maybe it's a buzzword, but if you're really engendering it, it means that you have to demonstrate proof of what, and someone has to demonstrate to you the proof that they can be trusted. Mm -hmm. 
whatever the competencies are. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's even if we go back to cognitive empathy, you know, can you trust that you can say this to the person? They now understand what you're thinking. You've made yourself vulnerable. Are they going to use it against me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So very complicated. Well, you're speaking to a psychologist. I can't make this easy, right? So this is. <laughs> That's great. That's great. One of your recent posts, Dr. Nick, was about, you know, the, the age old question of are leaders born or are they made? And, you know, what can we do? And, and you said it's kind of a mix of both of those. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, let's let's dive a little deeper on your thought process. Sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you, Chris. I mean, so um, there was a study done uh, that went on for 50 years, and they observed children from four weeks after they were born until they were 50 years old. And at certain stages of development, they started to find specific attributes. One of the things that I look at in what's called a trait versus a state is anxiety. If it's a trait anxiety, it means that there's an inborn predisposition, that the thresholds are lower, which means that you're gonna to get to uh, an anxious reaction sooner than later. Okay. So what if that's the case? And by the way, they could start to determine this about the age of 11 months. So uh, I'm sure you know who is checking out his son to make sure that he's not gonna qualify for that. But um, <laughs> so the, the, <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't know. Uh, um, so uh, so let, how does that enter into leadership? Well, if a person is anxious and they haven't learned how to handle that anxiety over their time, for, over, over their lifetime, what would that do to a leader? Mm -hmm. Now, what if the individual had that condition and found a more effective way to handle that? Would that affect some potential for leadership? So I'm not saying everybody who's born with anxiety is a better leader. I'm just saying that when we're looking at the combination and permutations of these mm -hmm. things, is that you look at things that are along those lines that are inherent predispositions or line traits. It's uh, called the New York Longitudinal Study, NYLS, uh, Stella Chess, Alexander Thomas. Um, for those of you who wanna look at the seminal research, great, I quote it all the time. There's newer research that supports it. So when we look at what's predisposed. Now, individuals that are anxious tend to be creative. Mm -hmm. Because they're creating things that don't exist, and they're used to doing that, which makes them more anxious. But they have an <laughs> ability to be a little more creative, and so their thresholds are lower. So it's a mixed blessing. Uh, yours truly was one of those guys that was anxious as a kid, and I have some, you know, talents in, in the arts as well. Um, so those are some examples, Chris, of things that are inborn. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what the research went on to say is that it's 50-50 because, you know, child. A, B, or C with parents A, B, or C produced different types of factors in performance. So the one thing that we know is threshold of responsiveness, intensity of reactions, uh, adaptability. Some of those things can be determined and there's an adult questionnaire that can give us that. So when we're doing a robust assessment, uh, we're using things that most people aren't aware of uh, because um, I don't use personality uh, to assess I don't understand why people do that. But in any case, um, so we would use factors like that to take a look at predispositions that might be some of the reasons that can influence certain decision-making processes. So that's some of the inborn stuff and then uh, some of the experiences. Now, the other piece I always take a look at is grit. And when you, um, 
when you look at Duckworth's uh, your research, um, I boiled it down to three things that I look at. I'm not saying this is uh, the only way to look at it, so it's passion, perseverance. Most people have passion, perseverance for what they're doing. Now, if that person has a high need for positive reinforcement, chances of being gritty is very low. Because for people that are really gritty, they don't need positive reinforcements from other. I don't like positive psychology um, because that's not the effective way of getting to the essence of what drives a person to perform. So you know, we can change a couple of things, but that's not really gonna to get to what we're looking at. So how many people that are watching are looking at how much positive reinforcement they need in order to perform at a higher level? Um, I don't use feelings, uh, overrated, yeah. and don't tell us the truth. And the reason that I don't believe in confidence is because the definition includes um, your beliefs about your ability to perform and your feelings. Now, beliefs don't tell us the truth. Take a look at what goes on in the world every day. People are dying and killing other people based upon what they believe. And feelings clearly don't always tell us the truth. Why would we ever use confidence as a predictor of performance? No, you can't. Maybe that, seals that, goes, that goes yeah. into the inputs, right? And, and I think, yeah. I think organizations right now are, do not know what leads what to, to maximize performance, right? And I think to your point, the, to the use of disks, the use of Myers-Briggs, like some of these things are now being so drawn outside of what they were originally intended for that they aren't, they're trying to use those tools to actually help them with performance, right? Or, or team design or, or whatever it might be. Can you just talk about, you, you've mentioned some of the assessments and I've, I've done one of your assessments, full disclosure to the audience. I have done one of these and I, I, I had a aha moment. The, the Dr. Nick knew that I took no practice swings in golf. Anybody that has played golf with me knows I do not take any practice swings. Um, and that to me spoke volumes because how, do you, how are you ever going to learn how somebody makes decisions and how, what their potential is from a piece of paper on a resume that already told you what they've have done, where they've gotten their education from and what potential experiences that they had in those roles. That's why this makes all the sense in the world to me. What would you guys do at performance in mind? Because before I make a big decision on who's going to lead the company or who's going to be my CFO or CEO, or who's going to be in my VP of HR, what does she look like or he or she look like, right? I would like to know how they're going to perform under stress because we're constantly under states of stress. And I would like to also know, are they a fit for this role before I decide to shell out a lot of this money? <laughs> Can you right. talk about, right, where we are today? Because you've probably seen it. You've seen those con artists, the people that have a great resume and the people that can bullshit their way through an interview. Yeah. How, do you, how are you deciphering fact from fiction when you're seeing the true potential of a leader, whether they're at an entry level position within the organization or starting to work their way up throughout that corporate ladder? Well, I sort of give you an example. Uh, you know, we, we do some, uh, we do talent acquisition. We don't go hunting for people. So if a court finds, you know, several people will send us and then we'll, we'll do the assessment. So uh, this corporation, professional uh, services uh, corp, and they wanted to hire this person. And uh, I looked over the evaluation. I said, well, the person's not telling you the truth. Oh, we met the guy. So yeah. We actually, we want to make him a partner. I said, well, he's not telling you the truth. He's pretty aggressive. He said, no, no. I said, do a better background check. Found out the following. 
he never worked for a company that he said he worked for. Wow. He got fired from a company that he said he resigned from. He had a weapons possession charge. Now, I couldn't tell you that he was that aggressive. I could just tell you that he was aggressive. Yeah. And I certainly could tell you that he won't be telling you the truth. Now, in spite of the fact that he passed, and there were three or four um, leaders uh, who evaluated this guy and they were ready to have him sign. And fortunately, one of the guys there said, oh, we did the test, but Nick, tell you what's going on. So that's what we can take a look at, because when you look at profiles about decision making, certain processes are, are pretty uh, glaring. Uh, and so that's really what we're doing is we're trying to look at, you know, a, a group of phenomenon, which may vary between individuals. And that's one of the reasons why what we do is very, very different. Uh, we can't give the report uh, to anyone unless we've actually speak with them. So you're not going to get a report just like that. Uh, so you sign up and you get the report. Yeah. And because during those interviews, I'm asking questions. Now, sometimes before we do that, they'll send me some stuff and I'll, ask, I'll give questions to the court, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's HR or the CEO who's ever doing the interviewing mm -hmm. and say, here are a couple of things I think you should check on. And pretty amazingly, they're getting data that they weren't getting before. Yeah, I can imagine because a piece of paper really only tells you so much. And, and again, people are uh, they're, they're smarter than they look sometimes. Right. Uh, they, they can they can tell you every yes. answer that they, they, they know you want to hear. And if yes. that's their intention of deception, right, they can deceive, right? Because then their attention changes yeah. to, to what they're, and I think that is really in this, in this rapid speed that we're in and, and, and the yeah. inability to find talent or the perception of there is the right. inability to find talent. I think you're right. I think the organizations that are looking to really be proactive in reducing the amount of stress and, and the awareness that they have of their employees' lives outside of work. Yeah. Um, that it's not just a nine to five, that they just have to care about their wellness or well-being from that nine to five, that it actually goes into their home with their family and their loved ones right. and their grandparents and their children, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the more aware that organizations are and leadership becomes of these stressors, to your point, the quicker they can actually create the environments and these cultures that they seek to drive optimal performance. Um, and right. it, we all know that it's putting the right people in the right seats. So oh, yeah. as we're closing out, um, one, I have two additional questions that I wanted to ask you. One will be our stereotypical close, but before we get there, I wanted to ask you this question. In your estimation, where is the future of leadership headed with all these changes, right? With all these changes that we're seeing, um, these, I'm now seeing trauma-informed leadership. We keep throwing buzzwords and keywords on these things. And I have this feeling that you have boiled it down because you shared a couple of these words with us on what celebrates what separates a great leader from an okay leader. And is that going to be the same characteristic now as 10 years from now? I don't think there's any question that when you look at the great leaders, uh, you know, whether you're looking at biographies, autobiographies, you know, posthumous uh, data. I think you're going to find that there are very specific systems that they're using. Mm -hmm. And why aren't we using that? And I, so I appreciate, you know, being uh, up to date and certainly all the stuff that's come, not that's what I want to make of such a generalization, but a lot of this stuff really becomes kind of buzzwords. You know, if you look at the Greeks uh, and you know that they're noted for their exercise, right? Olympics, all that kind of stuff. And so the Greeks would say, walk amongst the lilies. Like, what? Well, what are you exercising? Your senses. 
Mm. And so when you're walking amongst the lilies, not only getting physical exercises, but you're, you're, you're stimulating the entire person because of things that you can see, smell, touch, hear. Um, and so when, when, you, when you talk about what's happening now, why aren't we getting back to the basics? We know there's data out here. Uh, Kevin, you know that the assessments that we use is used with the Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's used with high-performance corps and high-performance uh, teams as well. Why are they using that? If it's, uh, I, I'm not saying it's the only profession that's in danger or the most elite, but when you look at that, this is a use to help them train at their highest level. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think decision-making is more important than your personality. Yeah. No, and I appreciate that because I, I think personality is, is um, like you said, anybody can put up a front, anybody can act uh, during, during the, the, the time that they're in the office. And I think that was really hard for people um, during the pandemic, uh, to your point. I think if they were acting, right, and trying to be something that they're not, and here they are now in a very stressful situation, I think you said it earlier, it has its way of working its way out, right? Whether they say something or what the words that they choose to use, the positive and negative words that they select, that intention always has its way of showing its cards. Intention right. has a really poopy uh, uh, poker face. <laughs> right. right, that's true. That's true. You'll, yeah. You will see it eventually, no doubt. Yes. Um, and the last but not least, how can I shave a couple strokes off my golf game? If you were to give me one, <laughs> one or two tips before we head into the season, I figured I would ask the coach. Okay. Well, the first thing we want to do is not have a swing thought. So okay. telling you not to have a swing thought is not a good thing. Uh, if I said, don't think about pink elephants, I know what you're thinking about. Exactly. So I'll give you, this is a, a really great tip. Um, so I want you to imagine taking a full swing and just isolate without moving your body. Tell me something that you feel when you're making that swing. I'm, I'm smiling. <laughs> I feel, I feel okay. joy, yes. Okay, well, can you feel, uh, let's look at physically. Can you feel the shoulder turn? Mm -hmm. Can you get a sense of what that is? Can you feel that? Can you feel where you are at impact? Can you feel the weight shift in your body mm -hmm. without even moving it? All right, so what you're doing there is exercising what's called a motor strip. It's like right here on both sides of your brain. When you have thoughts or when you're paying attention to the past problems, you light up what's called the limbic system, which is responsible for emotions and you know the reptilian brain, which keeps your heart going. But all that stuff can happen on its own. We need to preload your brain with the motor strip. So before you take the club back, so try this in your practice swing, try to sense a portion of your swing and make that very specific performance in a practice. Do it again the second time, feel it first in your mind body, do that. Then when you walk into the ball, the last thing you do when you bring your head back, whether it's putting or driving the ball, as soon as you're over the ball, you have to be over the ball for two seconds, at least no more than four. 50% of your brain is devoted to vision. If you're getting back to the ball quickly, like some people we know don't take practice swings, um, you haven't stabilized your brain. And um, so do that. And then just before you go, you will experience this what's called proprioception. You'll load the motor strip, pull the trigger. And Kevin, stay in touch. Let me know how you're doing. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. I'll let you know when I get four strokes down. Well, I just want to say thank you so, so much, Dr. Nick. This was um, a, a joy. Uh, I know how valuable your time is and, and all the great work that you're doing. And I think you're going to be really, really busy um, as we kind of move forward in this world of work, as we continue yeah. to see that uh, the human capital costs continue to rise. So businesses just have to be a little bit more selective or a little bit more intentional, right, behind their talent development and talent yeah. acquisition. Yeah. Um, right. But I just want to say thank you so, so much for, for blessing us with your intellectual and social capital oh. of all these years of experience that you've had with working with top athletes and, and performers in, in the CEO suites as well. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Chris and Kevin, for this opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. I look forward to seeing the video. Awesome. <laughs>